This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Local churches should be the place where polemics give way to patience, where arguments give way to explanations, where uh, the ability to differ on questions not at the heart of Christian faith should actually be explored. Do Christians actually care about the life of the mind? Well, in this conversation with historian Mark Knoll, we talk about his most recently updated book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. We talk about how a pandemic and political polarization and issues of race have really fractured the church. Listen in to his thoughtful, wise words to help us move forward, even as we look back. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. In this season of the Finding Holy Podcast, we are exploring themes about going back in order to move forward. So whether we're looking backwards in time, in history, through theology, or even in our own stories, we're going to be talking about what does it look like to embrace our past so we can embrace our future. Stay with us. All right, I am joined by Mark Knoll, who is a quite noted historian, and he has come out with a new version of one of his most well-known books, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, with a new preface and afterwards. So we get to talk a bit about where we are in America and in evangelicalism and what we can do about it. <laughs> so thanks for being here, Mark. Well, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. Oh, it's a privilege and a pleasure. Um, so you write in The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind a little bit about, I think you talked about being like a wounded lover <laughs> of uh, the whole evangelical movement. Uh, we'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about about that that process, that tension between, you know, maybe an evangelical form of Christian faith and doctrine, and then how that is actually played out, um, particularly you know, since you last came out with this book. Sure, uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to. I, I continue to uh, want to call myself an evangelical if I'm given the opportunity to explain what I mean. Right, right. What I uh, mean is uh, an emphasis on the tradition that actually goes way back in the history of Christianity, but that was given special prominence in the 18th century work by people like John Wesley in Britain and Jonathan Edwards in uh, what in the American colonies that uh, took the traditional Christianity more or less for granted, but said that in in the uh, the modern world as it was developing, where uh, structures were breaking down, it was possible for individuals to have a uh, 
personal uh, faith that was ennobling and encouraging and that could be then uh, the basis for the right kind of Christian activity in the world. So uh, the British historian David Bevington has uh, isolated characteristics, an emphasis upon Mm -hmm. conversion, an emphasis upon the cross of Christ as the key to salvation, emphasis on personal engagement with the scriptures, emphasis upon activity in in, uh, society, evangelism and other activity. And these evangelical characteristics I continue to uh, find uh, extremely valuable and, and to look back in my own life and say, individuals who exemplify those characteristics really made it very positive, continue to make a very positive impact in my life. So, okay, that's the one side. Yep. In, in the uh, 20th century and then in the 21st century, groups associated with those characteristics have, in my view, not always lived up to the potential to use the mind, to use thinking for the, for the glory of God and the, the, the cause of Christ, the causes of Christ right, rightly understood. So when the first edition of the book w- was written, I was thinking more about the legacy of what we call fundamentalism, right. which in many ways was a, was a helpful phenomenon to, to keep the churches uh, anchored in what really were the essentials of Christian faith, but with some negative consequences. So there was I think a, a fear of uh, authority outside of narrow church circles. There was certainly a, a great deal of controversy over what it meant to follow the scriptures. The term literal right. <laughs> uh, was, was prominent. And there's just all sorts of problems involved with uh, taking the Bible literally, unless you think carefully about what, what you mean by that, which uh, thinking carefully was never a, a real prominent trait in American religious life, Protestant religious life. And, and for much of the time, that was, that was a good thing. When the United States began, Europeans knew that Christianity couldn't survive because there was no overwhelming government authority. But in fact, it not only survived, but flourished because people just went out and did the right thing rapidly. They went to individuals, needy individuals were seeking um, a word from God. They provided it. But over time, Activism, intuition, uh, the, the things that people could do in a hurry didn't answer all of the questions that, that were being raised. And I, I think that, that was the situation I was trying to address most when the book was written in the early 90s. Since that time, there has been a concentration of, of political, social factors in the very definition of, of how, where Christians stand and how Christians uh, should act. So. For, for very obvious reasons, but people know all sorts of things about in the last few years, maybe going back into the end of the uh, 20th century, evangelical has, has more and more been seen as a, a political label right. for people who favor a certain kind of uh, politics. And that, that to me is an extremely unfortunate circumstance yeah. because it pulls attention away from what has been the, uh, the best of evangelical Christianity to, to, to accept uh, the, the traditions of, of orthodox belief, but then to emphasize the, the, the personal possibilities of faith in Christ, reliance upon the scriptures, activity for, for God, and those uh, I would call narrowly, specifically religious factors, I think have been, in many cases, overwhelmed by the political turmoil of, of the 21st century. Yes. 
Yes. And I mean, I think you see it just on a popular level all over where, you know, Christians are debate, you know, getting so incensed and polarized, even, you know, on social media about all of these sorts of politicalization um, of particular beliefs, rather than being formed, <laughs> you know, in our church communities, right. you know, towards a new, a new ability to think critically, to carefully consider, to give someone the benefit of the doubt. I feel like our, our Christian character is a real low bar right now. <laughs> Well, that's right. And and uh, what I tried to point out in the afterward to the new printing of, of the Scandal of the Evangelical Mind is that we have two really quite contrasting developments underway. One is what we've just been talking about, which is the, I would call it the subordination of Christian loyalties to the polemics of the social media world. And of course, we know that right. social media... It is great at emphasizing extremes. If you've got right. something really radical to say, you might get a good audience. If you say, on the other hand, well, there's this to be considered and that to be considered, the other right. to be considered, you're going to lose your audience. Okay, that's one side. Right. But then the other yep. side is there just is a growing number, not a huge number, not an overwhelming number, not a number that's transforming everything, but a growing number of people who have devoted their lives to intellectual labor academic uh, service, who either will call themselves evangelical or will be friendly with evangelicals or will be able to work with evangelicals who are doing really impressive intellectual labor and not at all being nervous about identified as, as Christian people. So we have on the one side mm -hmm. a, a kind of mini evangelical re renaissance of serious intellectual labor and on the other side, a, uh, a social media world in which terms like evangelical have become fighting terms. And that, that, right. that double situation is what I've, I've tried to explain in the new printing of the book. How would you, you know, given your own work on the topic and your own you know, life through all of these various phases, how would you say it fits with someone like James Hunter's work on, you know, the, this call to be have faithful presence within? And also, you know, in his work where he's talking about the importance of institutions and that if we don't have the institutionalization of a Christian thought world, we're not actually going to see cultural change. I, I think very highly of James Hunter's work and particularly over the last maybe 10 years, his, a book or two and then several articles. He's pointed out that the, um, the urge of Christian people to be involved and to have influence, which in some ways... Uh, was probably a good push if the churches were simply enclosed upon themselves. But if, if Christian people are uh, consumed by the, desi the desire to have influence rather than mm. consumed by the desire to do the right thing, then we, mm. we get the situation that has developed where the Christian faith is, I would say, prostituted to the mm -hmm. uh, agendas set by people out outside of the church. Hunters... Uh, Analysis of institutions, his, his uh, conclusion, to which I, I think is, is, is sound, his conclusion that long-term intellectual influence grows out of stable institutions where people are able to uh, ruminate, like cows chewing their cud, ruminate on problems for yeah. a considerable period, period, period of time. Hmm. And, uh, and again, I think we, we have a situation where in disciplines like philosophy and the law, 
some of the sciences, maybe in history, we see evangelical people. And again, you have to have a long list of characteristics, people that look like evangelicals, friendly to evangelicals, Catholics are willing to work with evangelical Protestants. We see a lot yeah. of really patient investment in the institutional frameworks necessary for nurturing solid scholarship that will have at least a little bit of reputation in the world, but more importantly, will be undertaken with the goal of using the mind for the cause of Christ. And that, that, uh, an, that assessment of James Hunter, I, I think, is, is, works both for the problems and for some of what are relative successes that we're actually seeing in intellectual matters today. Mm. What gives you hope? I mean, um, you know, for some, maybe some of these kind of intellectual partnerships that you're talking about, if you could maybe point out one or two that you feel like, okay, maybe these are some thinkers that people could go look up, um, you know, that there's, there's a sense in which all is not lost in the life of the mind. Sure. And, um, um, the, the difficulty is picking out one or two, but let, let me try. The law has not been usually considered a venue where Christian thinking uh, proliferates, although, the, the, of course, the, the, the history of the law in, in the West has been uh, a history dependent upon things coming out of the Christian Middle Ages, where we speak of the rule of law as more important than the, the individual power grabs by uh, specific groups. We have seen in the last uh, maybe 20, 25 years a, a significant number of leading uh, legal scholars, frankly Christian. Uh, I'm thinking of the Center for Religion and Law at Emory University, where John Whitty has written, it uh, seems like, a, a really good book every year on some aspects of, of the law and, and uh, mm -hmm. Christian faith, and, and who he, as well as uh, Lawyers like uh, law teachers like David Skeel at the University of Pennsylvania have encouraged younger uh, legal students to, to look at specific Christian relationships to the law, but then more generally at the law. What, what, where can the law be seen as a venue of the right kind of Christian activity in, in the world? That, that to me is extraordinarily uh, uh, significant. It, it didn't exist quite that way maybe 40 years ago. There, there were some... Mm -hmm. Hmm. interest amongst legal hmm. scholars in Christian matters, but nothing nearly so well-focused as has developed over the last 20 years. I think about the, the, very, the very controversial issue of uh, how to approach science, and particularly the science of Christian origins. I'm a big fan of the BioLogos Foundation, which is made up primarily yep. of practicing scientists who want to affirm their, their commitments to the scriptures, to an idea of human rescue that features the saving work of Christ and who are trying to show that properly considered, pulled out of the realm of philosophy, evolutionary science, as it's practiced in most of the reputable universities in the world, need not be a threat to the Christian faith. Now, it's not to say that everything that every one of Biologos affirms is correct. It's not to say that there might be some legitimate uh, uh, opposing points. But the great thing in my mind is the calm, deliberate emphasis, the focus on genuine research, genuine facts, and then to separate the observational characteristics of this kind of science from the conclusions that people want to draw. And their, their insistence is that their conclusions are drawn by people 
who honor the scriptures, who want to do the right thing in preserving Christian faith, and want to do the right thing in acknowledging there's been good observation of the world and appropriate scientific conclusions from that. So again, I don't think we had institutions like that 30 years ago, and we do now. Right. Yeah. And that is hopeful. And yeah, thank you for pointing those specifics out. And I'll make sure that they're in the show notes too, for folks who want to follow up. Are you worn out by hurry and hustle, and yet you don't know what it looks like to find a better way? Well, Jasmine Holmes called my book, A Spacious Life, Balm for a Weary Soul. Tish Harrison Warren called it a needed tonic, and Jen Pollock-Michelle talks about it as rescuing us from the siren call of self-help. Join these women as they have experienced both their own limits and seen how my book, A Spacious Life, helps all of us to embrace the goodness of our God-given limits. Find out more at aspacious.life. That's aspacious.life. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. As we think about where we are now, 2022, um, we've gone through a global pandemic. Maybe we're still in it. Who knows? <laughs> you know, um, a huge um, upset in various, you know, elections <laughs> in America, particularly. Um racial violence, you know, it just, it feels like everything has really erupted in the last several years. Um, and yet, you know, none of these things are new, uh, in some ways they just, maybe, maybe they're just more obvious to us now because of this social media world. So given where we are, what encouragement would you have for, yeah, those Christians who maybe feel unsupported in a life of the mind? And maybe have some inclination towards that. And then also, you know, those Christians who they, you know, maybe they they did their undergrad degree and they have kind of left behind that thinking part of themselves. And they are just kind of, you know, off on their train of success, whatever that might look like. You know, how do we begin to inculcate what habits might we practice as churches, as individuals, as institutions that would begin to help right. us to recover a life of the mind? I'm glad you mentioned churches, because I, I do think that uh, in the world in which we live, where there's so much information comes in from so many different places, if, we, if believing people do not have a venue 
where they can talk with other believers and actually go into problems, not, mm-hmm. not in huge depth, but at, at some depth, that er- everyone is, dis- is at a disadvantage. And that, and that local churches should be the place where uh, polemics give way to uh, patience, mm-hmm. where arguments give way to explanations, where uh, the ability to differ on questions not at the heart of Christian faith should actually be explored. And I, I, I fear yeah. that in at least some cases, partly because of the pressures brought on by the, the pandemic as, as well as uh, other things, I fear that in some cases the churches do not live up to their capacity to inculcate that kind of uh, believer-to-believer trust responsibility uh, discussion. When the first uh, edition of the scandal of the evangelical mind came out, I heard actually from people quite regularly in, in the academic world who, who would say things like, well, when I'm in the university, I, I really don't tell people that I'm, I'm a churchgoer because then they'll think I'm, I'm somehow, somehow undermining the intellectual enterprise. And when I'm in church, I'm reluctant to tell people I work at the university right. because they think that everybody in the university is, is godless. And what, what was encouraging there was that for, for most people, I, I couldn't necessarily provide the answers, but I could, I could say, well, you know, there are other sociologists, there are other psychologists, there are actually other uh, chemists who are thinking about these things. And here's, their, here's the organizations that they've set up. And it's, it's true for almost all of what we consider the academic disciplines. There are Christian, institu- Christian national, international Christian institutions where, there can, where people can find the right kind of support for the goal of using the mind for the cause of the kingdom of, of God. Church life uh, is, I think, uh, uh, desperately needed, uh, uh, strengthening more so, I would say, than the academic world. Because the, the difficulties mm-hmm. I see right now with use of terms like evangelical thinking lies not in the thinking that's being done, but in the lack of communication between what might be considered mm-hmm. the university world and might be uh, considered the, the world outside the universities. And there, uh, hmm. The answer is not uh, forcing people to think in, in new ways if they're not ready to it, but the answer is calm, patient, discussion, debate that does not become angry, that does not become inflamed, that credits people who have a different viewpoint with also being rooted in the scriptures and desiring to be the right thing, but also then hopefully the willingness to pause and to ask, well, why do you why do you think that, and to listen before before reacting, <laughs> and uh, in, in a world where, you know, the fuses are, fuses are short, I think that that's a uh, mm-hmm. that's a real challenge. Although I, I I I've heard, and this is all anecdotal, but just the number of people and responsibility in the churches, pastors and other leaders who are working hard at trying to make the churches a space for calm deliberate uh, discussion hmm. that that does not uh, fire off into uh, polemics, but actually considers mm-hmm. things from the standpoint of the scriptures, from the standpoint of Christian tradition, from the standpoint of acknowledged authorities in different areas of, of modern life. Yeah, my, my husband's a pastor, so we very much f- feel that tension, <laughs> right, of, um, well, God, of God you know, standing. I, uh, yeah, it's it's a hard time. Um, you know, it's 
trying to kind of create new rhythms uh, and new ways of relating for folks who are just, at the very least, just plain exhausted, right, <laughs> from from the pandemic. I actually don't think that uh, people who are in the academic world will, will hear what they need to hear from the Christian community in general, the Christian community in general not hear mm-hmm. what maybe they can learn from academics if there aren't church environments where this mm. kind of exchange can take place. Mm. That's good. That's really helpful to be, to yeah, to be mulling over and thinking about, you know, how can our churches be hospitable places where people from various viewpoints and ways of thinking and looking at the world that we could be a, a common third third space. I really like that. What would you, you know, you talk about just the the politicization um, and polarization that's going on in terms of race and politics, particularly um, in your introduction to your new volume. How have you seen those issues divide the church? And what what would you say to folks who find themselves maybe more discipled by, you know, YouTube videos of the latest thinker <laughs> uh, versus um, either by their local congregations or, you know, reading the history, right, of the evangelical church in America is a really important step, right? That we have to be able to go back to go forward. So what would you say about, you know, this particular kind of hot button issues that we face right now and how might we journey maybe back in time to find a way forward? Right. Uh, Those are questions kind of aimed at the wheelhouse of people who work in history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say that my writing about modern evangelical life is really a sidelight. I'm, I'm a historian of, of American and Canadian and British history in the 18th and 19th century, and I've spent a lot of time uh, looking particularly how the scriptures were used. Mm-hmm. And because of that emphasis, uh, a theme that just rises to the top by itself is, is how the Bible is used on the one hand, on the one side, in debates over whether slavery could be permitted, and then on the other side, how the Bible was, was used in American communities that differ. So uh, one of the things I really enjoyed studying, particularly in the last 10 years, is how the Bible was put to use in African-American communities, a, a subject that really was distinct from how the Bible was put to use in European-American communities mm-hmm. until we come to the civil rights movement of, of the 1960s and 70s. The bearing of this uh, particular historical question on contemporary issues has a great deal to do with uh, the, the, the racial contentions, the racial divides that are, are more obvious now and emphasized more than, than they have been in, in some time. And the, 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 the really, um, the key thing I've drawn from this historical study is how evangelical, in the religious sense of the word, almost all of the black engagement with scripture was and substantially continues to be. When the word evangelical is used today with a political cast, we really are talking about white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. A little bit of history will show that African-American church communities that uh, honored the Bible, emphasized conversion, believed that the cross of Christ was the key matter in, in all of life, and were active as, as in Christians in their own spheres. In other words, acted like evangelicals, thought like evangelicals, looked like evangelicals, religiously considered, yep. on politics and society were greatly differed from white evangelicals. And, and just the, the, the footnote that puts this into perspective for 
contemporary life is we think, well, what, what's the American constituency that's the most loyal to the Republican Party? And it's white evangelicals. Right. What in the, and since the 1930s is the American constituency that's been most loyal to the Democratic Party? It's black Protestants, black churchgoers who are active in their congregations. So if we see that, that just one fact, we have to scratch our head and say, yeah. now what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I don't want to get started on the history because we'll be here for the rest of the, rest of the <laughs> afternoon. But, but uh, uh, to understand a little bit of the history of how scripture inspired uh, visions of Christian liberty and actual liberty in black communities, and how scripture was used by many white communities in much the same way, but also in white communities, sometimes as a tool to keep African Americans enslaved, sometimes as a tool to try to work for liberation. We see there's a, re- there's a really complex history hmm. of religious, social, political, economic engagement having to do with race. And if, if we if we understand even a little bit of that history, mm-hmm. I think we'll be in a better position uh, today not to react when we hear things that sound strange, not to react when there's there's a new idea, but to but to ask the question, well, where did that come from? Yeah. Critical race theory. What do we mean by that? What mm-hmm. what are the different components when people say that? Do we have a, a common definition? Well, well, what goes in? In other words, all sorts of questions that need not reaction, but careful thought, and I want to say as a historian, his historical investigation. Mm-hmm. That's so, I mean, just even that beginning question, like, where did this come from instead of this, right. ah, like, this is foreign and scary, and, you know, or I don't know about this idea, and so therefore reacting, you know, uh, in, in very exactly. reactive ways. <laughs> I can't give up the right word, but... Um, I think that's a wonderful, even just practical thought. Um, it works for raising teenagers <laughs> as well, <laughs> which is where I am right now, you know, is, oh, that's right. just right. try I'm to be curious right. instead of, you know, simply react. Right. Um, we can learn a lot uh, as, as a general rule of life there. Where would you suggest, you know, if people are going, oh, how do I begin to kind of in- to investigate some of these issues? Um to get a history, what recommendations would you have for like, you know, history of the church in America? Or, I mean, obviously you've written several, <laughs> but, um, but you can plug your own books, you know, as well. But, you know, so for people who are saying, you know, I would love to start a book club maybe at my church, or I would really enjoy investigating this topic across, you know, political aisles or racial, um, differences. How do we begin to explore some of these topics historically rather than polemically? Well, it is, it is America where it pays to advertise, I guess. So I, I have written a book called <laughs> a, a History of Christianity in the United States and Canada, which is a general survey mm-hmm. and was able to uh, do a, a second edition of that just a couple of years ago that tried to work harder at explaining the different uh, trends and uh, church involvements of the last 40 and 50 years. When the book, that book first came out about 1990, mm-hmm. And it really didn't mm-hmm. didn't do too well in explaining recent history, and I'm, I'm not sure it does completely a good job now. But at least try to uh, talk about the way in which, for example, uh, the modern civil rights movement made it possible for the very first time for there to be a national white evangelical movement. Because up into the mm-hmm. 1960s, 
if you went to church and you were a Protestant in the South and you were white, you were a Democrat in the reverse in, in, the, in the North. Mm-hmm. But just that, that level of explanation. But on, on, on uh, get, doing just a little deeper, there's any number of really important books that are easily available. Um, uh, Lives, for example, of Frederick Douglass, the great uh, uh, black mm-hmm. reformer yeah. of the 19th century, who was a thorough student of the Bible, who uh, uh, all throughout his career what was interested in, in what the churches could do to help things and actually even after he lived into the 18, early 1890s, but became in his later life even more committed to the, to the authority of the Bible, the messages of the scriptures, even at a time mm-hmm. after the Civil War, as, as many people know, for African-Americans, the life became in many ways uh, more difficult in the United States than it had been even, even under uh, slavery. Uh, the, the, the lives of, of Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, there are several books now out on these that are quite easily accessible. We, we see uh, these remarkable un, unlettered ladies who were in in uh, yeah. different ways converted individuals, uh, became knowledgeable of Scripture by listening, uh, could could sing a gospel message, mm-hmm. and were active uh, in resisting slavery and and in, in promoting uh, rights for. Uh, Freedom for, for uh, African Americans, uh, and, and there's more more books uh, on the way. More more good things. I've, I've recently finished a book trying to study the the popular use of the Bible in the, in the 19th century called America's Book. And I end end with the chapters on on uh, African American use. It's some really really remarkable black preachers at the end of the 19th century, start of the 20th century. Uh, particularly a man named Francis Grimke, who was active as a Washington, D.C. pastor for many decades, who was as as evangelical and even, you would say, fundamentalist in his belief in the Bible and a founder of the NAACP mm-hmm. and a, a, a proponent of uh, equal rights for uh, African-Americans. So the woods are just full of, of uh, knowledgeable material, but it does yes. take patience and it does take uh, the, the, the realization that to have a better, clearer, fuller understanding. It's not going to be a morning's work. It's not going to be a, a reading of a blog post or two, but it's actually going to take a little bit of, of, of mm-hmm. reading concentration. Which we've lost a lot of that. I think, you know, in the last right a few decades, um, the ability to sit down with a book um, and give our, our sustained attention. So thank you for the encouragement to do so. Uh, I would love to as we conclude to ask what your laundry routine is. And, you know, the reason I asked this question actually kind of comes from Kathleen Norris's book uh, called the quotidian mysteries, where she, she comes back to faith actually as she sees, as she sees the Catholic priest doing the dishes, right? He's cleaning up after the Eucharist. And I love that image of that, you know, our, our small things that we do can also show us um, something about the life of faith. So what does your laundry routine look like? Well, my, our, our household has division of task, and, and uh, my wife cooks. She's a great cook. Uh, she had a serious stroke a few years ago, but I'm mm-hmm. so grateful she came back. I've been washing the dishes forever since we got married. She yeah. does most of the laundry and has even trained me to when I'm supposed to put my pajamas into the laundry basket every Tuesday and Saturday. So that's there my great go. accomplishment when it comes to laundry routine is remembering when I'm supposed to pass on the clothes I've been wearing. That is impressive. She's the real expert in our household on, 
clean on the clothes. laundry. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I just love that that's so thorough and consistent. That's beautiful. Ours is mostly, gosh, we're leaving for a vacation. So it's, yeah, today I'm doing about four loads of laundry. But generally, it's right. um, the laundry is my husband's job in our in the Hales household because mm. he he's particular about it. And so, yep, we and I don't care. <laughs> so there we are. It's a way to love one another. Well, it is a, a Christian principle that you want to maximize the gifts the Lord has given. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark, um, for your thoughtful continued work in the history of the church and belief and how that comes out in practice. We appreciate your good work and helping us think and to practice some of these virtues of patience and non-reactivity as well. Good. Thank you. And, and all the best and blessings in your uh, work too as well. Thank you. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Knoll. You can find out more about his books, especially The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which has been recently released with a new preface and afterward at the link in the show notes, as well as links to all of the wonderful books that Mark mentioned earlier, as far as some further reading ideas. I always love to leave my listeners with one small step as you move forward in your day. And I would simply ask you to take a breath and to stay curious. And so whether that's in your online interactions, whether that's with your own family or church members, wherever you find yourself, maybe just make a practice of taking a breath and staying curious. Where did this come from was such a helpful question to help us reframe our ability to slow down, to think, to practice patience, and to begin to ask the origin and the history of some of the ideas that might come up so that we can begin to understand them and to react in Christ-like ways. And then secondly, go pick up a copy of Mark's book so you know where some of these ideas have come from and you know better how to act compassionately in your spheres of influence. Thank you for being here. It is a honor and pleasure every week to chat with you. Be sure to leave a rating and review if you have a second on Apple Music or wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Maybe it will provide some good conversation across the aisles as well. Remember, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.